The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Um, Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as you saw from the scripture reading this morning, we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've begun the series by tackling the Beatitudes one at a time. And each Sunday as we come and we take the Beatitudes one at a time, I I think it's important for us again and again to ask the question, what are the Beatitudes? What is their purpose? And throughout the series, we've been answering those questions by saying that the Beatitudes, they're invitations. They're Jesus inviting us into an abundant life of deep joy and flourishing in Christ. They offer this invitation. They they paint a picture of what deep happiness looks like. Um, They're an opportunity for you and I to reorient ourselves in the world. They offer an opportunity for you and I once again this morning to consider the best way of being human in the world. We've shown throughout the series that a better translation than blessed can be truly joyful or flourishing. And I think that this helps us get at what's going on. So think truly joyful or flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the Beatitudes. Once again, Jesus inviting us into a way of being in Him and in the world that will result in deep happiness. Alright? So, now that we've got that orientation once again, let's look at our verse for today. Blessed or truly joyful or the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed or truly joyful are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I, I think it could be easy to check out with this beatitude. It's one that's it's well known. But I think to do so would be to miss the purpose of the beatitudes, right? Uh, that once again, Jesus is inviting us to dwell on, to consider, and to think about God's mercy and how we are to live in light of that. How we're to be merciful ones in the midst of all of life's complexity. So, I want to begin today by talking about divine mercy. By having us reflect together on God's mercy Recently, I was talking to a grad student at Shades, and he was sharing about how people uh, come all, from all over the world to his particular p- 
program. People come from all over the world to, to Alabama, sweet home Alabama. They come here to go to this program. And so because of this, he's made friendships with people that come from very different cultures. And some of these people have had little to no exposure to Christianity. And you know what's caught him off guard in the midst of this? What's caught him off guard is that he said for the first time in his life, he is having to defend the idea of a gracious and merciful God. For the first time in his life, he's having to defend, defend the idea of a God who's loving, of a God who's compassionate, of a God who forgives. He's like, it's, it's wild. I, I've never had to do this before, right? I mean, think about our cultural context. I think it's fair to say that even in the large buckle of the Bible belt, that most people at baseline think that they are far more loving, far more gracious, and far more compassionate than the triune God that's revealed in the Scriptures. And when I speak of this, I'm not just talking about people out there, I'm, I'm talking about my own heart. Far too often, I take on this posture and I think, if only God was as loving as I was. Am. If only God was as compassionate as I am. If only God was as merciful as I am. But what's interesting is that when we enter into the strange world of Scripture, we encounter a completely different reality. So think about it with me. Uh, think Hosea 11.9 where Yahweh says, I will not execute my burning anger. Why? For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Do you see it? Um, God is holy. He is other. He is unlike us. And so what does that mean? He's merciful. He will show mercy and not judgment. Uh, think about Jonah with me, right? By the end of the book, Jonah's upset with God. Why is Jonah upset with God? Because God has shown mercy and not what? Judgment to Nineveh. Right? By, by the end of the story of Jonah, this, this wild story, we're supposed to see how restricted and how limited Jonah's mercy is compared to Yahweh's. Uh, think Exodus 33. Another, another weird scene in which Moses comes before God and he begs God for God to show His glory to him. And then when the moment for revelation comes, when the moment comes where God shows His glory to Moses, the revelation is a word God speaks. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Ah, okay. So what's the glory that's revealed when Moses asks this bold question? It's God's character. It's who He is. It's the beauty, the goodness of who He is and who is He. He's merciful. He's merciful. 
You see, we kind of can exist in this posture where we think God's mercy is so small compared to ours. But the Scriptures reveal something totally different. The Scriptures reveal that you and I in our humanity cannot fathom the depths of God's mercy. Can't fathom the depths of His mercy. I love what the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote. I'm going to say it a few times. It's worth pondering. Thomas Watson wrote that the sun is not so full of light as God is full of mercy. Let me say that again. The sun is not so full of light as God is full of mercy. Who is God? God is perfect goodness. He is perfect in and of Himself. And it's out of that perfect, abundant goodness that He freely gives to us. What's so beautiful is that our need is not the cause of God's mercy. It's simply the occasion that brings it out. Think about this for a second. God's mercy to you was God's idea. God does not have to be convinced to be merciful. He simply is. So, what's a definition of God's mercy in light of everything that that I've been saying? Well, I think the theologian John Webster offers us a simple definition, a simple and broad definition that's, that's that's helpful, though. He says that God's mercy is the directing of God's majestic goodness to the relief of our misery and brokenness. I love that definition. God's mercy is the directing of God's majestic goodness to the relief of our misery and brokenness. God is good, and His goodness towards us takes the form of what? Mercy. Mercy for sufferers and mercy for sinners. This is mercy that forgives. This is mercy that blesses. This is mercy that treats us gently. This is mercy that covers. This is mercy that gives new life. The Gospel is good news that God has shown us mercy. That God is merciful. And so I think that any conversation about mercy, and in particular, any conversation about human mercy, must begin with a conversation about God's mercy. Because we often think that we are far more merciful than He is. But rather, we need to be reoriented this morning to once again gaze upon God's mercy to see the beauty of it, and then to see that ourselves are people daily in need of mercy. That's the foundation in which a human conversation on mercy must begin. All right. So, what do we say about human mercy in light of divine mercy? Right? Uh, 
In the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, Jesus says, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So what does a life, what does a church under the merciful rule of King Jesus look like in in the day in and day out grind of life? What does this look like? How do we think about human mercy? Well, I like what Hendrik Nicholas says, his definition of the merciful one. Listen to this. I think it's helpful. What does a merciful life look like? He says, a merciful life looks like stretching out an open hand with food for the poor, with loving hospitality, and with forbearance and forgiveness. All right, let me say that again. A merciful life looks like stretching out an open hand with food for the poor, with loving hospitality, and with forbearance and forgiveness. What I, what I like about this definition is in a simple way, I think it helps us get at this multi-layered vision of mercy that we see in Scripture. So I'd like to take these one at a time and for us to think about them together. Okay, so first, helping the needy. Helping the needy. To be a merciful disciple of Jesus is to be someone who provides material, emotional, and spiritual help to those in need. To be a merciful disciple of Jesus is is to be someone who provides material, emotional, and spiritual help to those in need. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Rebecca Eklund has written a really helpful book on the Beatitudes. And she makes this point in her book. She says that the Greek language itself indicates almsgiving as a form of mercy since the word for almsgiving used in Matthew 6 is a close relative of the adjective merciful used in this beatitude. So even within the Greek language itself, we see this layer of mercy giving to those in need. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon uh, titled, The Duty of Charity to the Poor. And in it, where's one of the places he goes? Our verse for this morning. Um, St. Augustine has this really striking image. Um, The image is this. He, He says that the church, so this is you and I, he says, you and I are a beggar standing at God's door in great need. And then he says this. He says, the way that you treat, talking about us, the way you treat the beggar at your door is the way that God will treat his. We're beggars at God's door. And Augustine says what? The way you treat the beggar at your door is the way that God will treat his. Now what is Augustine doing here? Is he... 
setting up this kind of tit-for-tat relationship? Is he talking about a kind of workspace salvation? No, he's using this striking image to, to wake us up, to open our eyes, and to get us to see our need, the depths of God's mercy, and then how we are to live in light of that as disciples of Jesus Christ. So, so for the people of the Beatitudes, for those who have tasted and seen the mercy of Jesus Christ, there is not a misery that escapes us. Because we are a people who being in great need have been shown great mercy. Secondly, welcoming the outsider. Welcoming the outsider. To be a merciful disciple of Jesus is to be someone who welcomes the outsider with hospitality. Welcomes the outsider with hospitality. Many of us will be familiar with this scene in Matthew 9. Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house and the Pharisees go up to the disciples, and do you remember what they ask the disciples? They say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinner, sinners? And what does Jesus say? He says, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So there's a lot going on in this verse, right? As there always is when Jesus says anything. But one of the things that I think is going on here is Jesus is showing that if the Pharisees had hearts that loved God and loved their neighbor, then they would show mercy and care for these societal rejects instead of standing over them in judgment. If they had hearts that loved God and, and loved their neighbor, then they would show compassion, kindness, mercy, and a bold hospitality to these societal outsiders instead of standing over them in judge, judgment. I was recently deeply convicted on Twitter. Yes. Uh, Rich Velotis tweeted this. He said, It's a really interesting evangelism strategy to despise the people that you are trying to convert to Jesus. That punches, doesn't it? It's a really interesting evangelism strategy to despise the people you are trying to convert to Jesus. The gospel is the good news that you and I were foreigners, outsiders, and yet God in His mercy has welcomed us with a bold and scandalous hospitality. Because of the good news of Jesus Christ, the church should be known for tearing down walls, crossing enemy lines, and having a radical hospitality. I don't even know what John Mark was talking about at the end of the service last week, but I walked up right in the middle of him saying, you know, 
nobody eats with their enemies anymore. And I thought, yeah, that's probably not a church program that would sell very well. Come, we're going to eat with the people that we can't stand. See you on Wednesday night, right? We should eat meals with those that the world says, nope, you two can't be together. You two can't sit down. You two can't talk. Don't get together with them. Don't interact or you will be unclean. Something for us to reflect on this morning. Who is the outsider to you? Who is that that person that at times does not feel worthy of God's grace to you? Or God's mercy? What does it look like for you in compassion to welcome them with a bold hospitality? For you were an outsider and God welcomed you. Okay. The third layer. The third layer. Forgiveness and forbearance. To be a merciful disciple of Jesus is to be someone who forgives those who sin against you. To be a merciful disciple of Jesus is to be someone who forgives those who sin against you. If you open up the Scriptures and go to Exodus 33, 2 Chronicles 30, Nehemiah 9, you you will see that God's mercy there indicates what? That He's slow to anger. That He's gracious. And it indicates His forgiveness. God, out of His abundant mercy, forgives much. He forgives those who have no right to this blessing. No right to forgiveness. He forgives those that have sinned not only against His creation, but He forgives those who have sinned against Him. Right? Think David. Psalm 51, you remember? Against you and you alone have I sinned. Right? David's saying, I've not only sinned against God your creation, but I've sinned against you. It's an intensifying of, of the sin. That's, that's what's going on. God forgives those who sin against Him. Right? Who reject Him. Who turn their backs on Him. Who curse His name with their lives. So, in Christ, as recipients of this scandalous forgiveness, we pray, forgive us our sins, is what? As we forgive those who sin against us. I imagine that many of you in this room are familiar with Corey Tin Boom through her book, The Hiding Place. For those of you that aren't, Corrie ten Boom worked against the Nazis in World War II, hiding Jews in her home. When she was caught, she was sent to a concentration camp where she saw her father and her sister, Betsy, die. It was only because of a clerical error that she was allowed to be released from the camp. As I read her, I see someone who has suffered more at the hands of others than I can ever begin to fathom. In one of her books, she has this striking section 
where she recalls an encounter that she had with one of the concentration camp guards after the war had ended. She encounters him. And I want to read it at length this morning because I think every word is worth listening to. So listen to Corey's words this morning with me. Okay. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their coats, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a flashback. A blue uniform and a visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him. The leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking?
It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who, who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. Oh, how I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on. But they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior but only draw them afresh from God each day. That's it. Right? I mean, it's all there. When you open up the Bible, you see that what sets God's people apart from the rest of the world is their mercy. The holy God who is not like us and who is merciful has created a new people, holy ones who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to reflect His mercy into the world. Why are the merciful ones flourishing? Why are the merciful ones truly joyful? Because they experience the mercy of God, right? This is not a, a tit-for-tat relationship like I said earlier. This is not Jesus uh, holding up the balancing scales at Judgment Day. No. This is not a threat to perform from our Savior. Remember what we talk about at the beginning. The Beatitudes are invitations into an abundant life of deep joy and flourishing. 
The people of the Beatitudes are a people that are truly joyful because we are a people who have been caught up, swept up into the mercy of God. We are people who are alienated from God outside of His covenant, and yet through Jesus Christ we've received mercy. The Holy Spirit's been poured into our hearts. They've been softened. We've been transformed. So now our hearts break for the things of the world that break God's heart by that power of the Holy Spirit and a compassionate heart, merciful acts flow out from the world. And as we do so, as we show mercy to those that don't deserve it, to those who have hurt us, to those who have sinned against us, what happens? We experience the mercy of God all the more. We experience the love of God all the more. We know God more. We experience his goodness, right? This is why the people of the Beatitudes are truly joyful. You see, this is not the kind of begrudging uh, duty, right? This is not just checking off a list of behaviors. No, remember, the Pharisees were hypocrites because their outward actions did not match what? Their hearts, right? Their hearts were hard. Their hearts were cold, right? No, this is not just about outward acts. This is about a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And a heart that knows that we have a God that one day is going to set everything right. And that the good news is that on that day when he sets everything right, we will not be met with the justice that we deserve. We will be met with what? Mercy. Mercy. So let me just close with this. In the day in and the day out grind of life, what it looks like to be the merciful people of God is really complicated, <laughs> right? Um, Thanksgiving's coming up. I don't know if some of you in your head are sitting here thinking in the complexity of all the family dynamics that exist in this room, what does it look like for me to be merciful? Right? These are difficult questions that cannot be answered in a sermon. What does it mean in the sermon today? What does it mean to be a merciful people who also serve a God who's just? And so therefore, we are a merciful people that also pursue justice. What does it look like in this situation? What does it look like in this situation? What does it look like in this situation? Right? I can't anticipate all those questions. Right? This is complicated. This isn't easy. And this is why what I'm about to say is so important. If we are to discern what it means to be merciful disciples of Jesus Christ, we must do so in the context of the church. We must do so by seeking wise counsel. We must do so by coming together, speaking with one another, praying with one another, encouraging one another, and supporting Supporting one another. Because to be a merciful people, and this is hard, 
it will cost you something. It will cost you something. But you will be given everything that you need in Jesus Christ. As Corey Tin Boom would remind us, it is only by daily drawing upon the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be a people who offer a scandalous mercy in our day. May God empower us to do it.